Good morning, and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Today, our show is about Portland's working waterfront. We're going to hear directly from a group of fishermen and a wharf owner about the importance of our state's most urban working waterfront. But first, a little bit of background for our listeners who may not have been following this story. This past December, when we recorded this show, Portland City Council enacted a six-month moratorium on all new development on the city's waterfront. The goal was to allow time to identify solutions to a tense battle surrounding the future of this space. Specifically, we're talking about the piers and wharves along Commercial Street in the heart of the city, where fishermen increasingly share space with tourists, law offices, and trendy restaurants. Such challenges are not isolated to Portland, nor are they new. For decades, Maine's coastal communities have been striving to balance the needs of water-dependent industries, like the fishing industry, with other forms of coastal development, like hotels and restaurants. Hotels and restaurants may certainly benefit from being on the water, but their industry survival is not exclusively dependent on that access. And that, exactly, is the rub. Portland has long been recognized as a city that has successfully maintained its fisheries heritage, its grit, while also emerging as one of the nation's up-and-coming cities. But Portland's working waterfront is at a crossroads, and throughout the coast of Maine and beyond, all eyes are on Portland. Portland tends to set patterns that ripple throughout the state. And from an economic perspective, Portland's working waterfront serves as a critical commercial hub for fishing businesses throughout Maine's coast. Much of the bait used by lobstermen, for example, goes through Portland's wharves. So on today's show, we share the perspectives of six Portland fishermen and one of Portland's wharf owners. Several of these men are members of the working group designated by the City Council to come up with solutions before the end of the current six-month ban on new development. These folks will help us understand the city's centuries-old reliance on the sea, the challenges for the past 30 years as they have watched their waterfronts change, and what they envision for the future. A final note before we get started, I wanted to thank Monique Coombs of Maine Coast Fishermen's Association, who helped make connections with the people we will hear today. I am grateful to both Monique and to Becky Rand, the owner of Becky's Diner, right in the heart of the Portland Working Waterfront, where we recorded this conversation. This show was recorded in December, and we will not be taking any calls today. Now, let's get started. So we're at Becky's Diner in Portland, Maine, and I'm sitting here with um, six fishermen and a wharf owner um, and some other folks, and we're talking about Portland's working waterfront. Um, Why don't we start by going around the room 
and identifying who's here, just so we get a sense of your name and what you do. Jim Buxton, Monsterman, among other things. Great. Uh, Bill Coppersmith, uh, Lovesman for 40 years, uh, vice president of the uh, Maine Lovesman Union, and I tie up at Union Law. I'm John Bissonnette. I've been lobster in uh, Portland for 40 years. Uh, I'm a member of the Maine Lobster Union, and uh, I tie up on Hobson's for um, Wallace Spear, and uh, I was a commercial fisherman for 30 years, and I've been lobstering uh, for a long time. And uh, I tie up at uh, Custom House Wharf. Keith Lane, fish off Custom House Wharf, Portland resident, been fishing a long time also. <laughs> Charlie Poole, my family owns and operates the Union Wharf. It was built in 1793, and my family's been involved since the early 1800s. And I am just a steward in time, maybe sixth or seventh generation. But, uh, we, we create a platform for guys like this to operate from. My name's Greg Turner, and I've been fishing out of here for 40 years, ground fishing, scalping, lobstering. I fish off Widgery Wharf at this time, and I'm also a member of the Maine Lobster Union, board director. So um, several of you talked about different wharfs. Why don't we start with um, painting a picture for folks who are listening about what the Portland waterfront is like. Um, and maybe we can start with our wharf owner in the room. Um, describe Union Wharf, and then we'll hear from these other guys about the wharfs that they work out of. Uh, Union Wharf is a solid uh, fill pier with a crib, uh, a concrete and timber crib um, uh, apron, I should say, around it. So solid meaning it's, it's all, it's all man-made. Everything from uh, Forest Street out is man-made on the Portland waterfront. So all these piers originally originated at Forest Street, crossed over what is now Commercial Street, that was filled in for the railroad and somewhere in the mid to late 1800s. But Union Wharf is a solid uh, wharf stone crib apron around it. It's the home to about 21 different leaseholding tenants, uh, many of which are what I'll call marine-related oil spill cleanup, uh, lobster bait, lobster companies, uh, radar, electronic companies, uh, marine construction company, um, salvage company, and so on. Um, we are about four to six acres. Uh, we have some adjoining properties, uh, but we are uh, pretty much dedicated in terms of the base operation to providing lobster boats, other commercial important pilots, for example, tie up there as a home base of operation. And for the lobster fishermen, they have a place to park their vehicle, unload their gear. We don't have enough room to store gear, but they can unload. And many of them are tied alongside floats, so they have a decent base of operation. How many um, commercial fishermen do you have connected to your wharf, roughly? I think there's roughly about 15 or 16 lobster boats that, that call Union Wharf home base, uh -huh. that pay their tenants, they pay us every month and operate from the pier. Okay. Uh, what are some of the other wharves that people tie up um, or to you. I tie up on Merrill's Wharf. Um, Merrill's Wharf has probably been redeveloping away from commercial use faster than most. Um, when I first 
moved on to the wharf 20 years ago, it was uh, a uh, self-storage building. It had been purchased in the late 80s and had been sort of caught in the last working waterfront referendum. So I believe the plan at the time was to turn it into condos and that was stopped and they just sort of sought uses. There was, you know, practice space for bands. There was um, self-storage units inside the building. And the pier was, the water side of the pier was always, uh, there was a gurry boat, there was some gill netters and lobster. And, you know, over the 20-year period, they have, you know, probably 10 years ago, maybe 11 years ago, they really, you know, worked hard to redevelop <coughs> the pier. So now we have three and a half floors of law office. The first floor is predominantly, you know, um, office style space it's got carpeting and things like that so there's not really a uh, yeah there's a bar in it uh, so that so it's not really set up for what i would consider a traditional commercial um marine use marine offices absolutely but that's basically what it is and then um there's their improvements to the outside you know the parking lot the the pier and stuff have been sort of sort of uh, good and bad. They capped the, the wharf over, so now there's an erosion problem. They've got um, um, you know some of the improvements to make it more useful for them as a as a office space has sort of curtailed a little bit on the commercial fishing end, but I mean they still provide it's a it's a great berth from for weather protection and for access you know and we're just as the waterfront grows we have to adapt mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. sounds good how about union law <coughs> the same wharf that we yeah, just heard yeah, about it's a great walk to work on uh, everything charlie said is absolutely true it's got a light at the end of it so i can fight the traffic on commercial street but I want to tell you about a walk I used to be at. It was called Central's Walk. Central Walk used to be uh, a place much like Union Walk. Pretty much exactly the same, about the same width, same type of build, boats on both sides. Groundfish was able to be unloaded there, crab meat was fixed, scallops were shucked, nets were piled up, traps were piled up. It was busy, it was noisy, and it smelled. That's what the working waterfront's all about. A number of years ago, they decided they were going to put condos there. They promised the city and the fishermen we would never be kicked out of there. And we would still be able to run our businesses off that wall. As they built it, they made it very difficult for us to work on that wall. The buildings got torn down. Some of the places went out of business. Some were moved. The boat slowly couldn't take it anymore, so they left. There was two boats left, myself and a fellow named Ben Norton, those poor girls. They stuck us on the worst end of the wharf, so we had to sustain the winds. And they told us, when are you guys leaving? You gotta go. We said, we're not going. They said, we'll tell you what, we'll subsidize your rent for a year. 
Oh, we'll tow your boats out. So that was the end of fishing boats over there. Central Wharf, which is now called Chandler's Wharf, which is part of Fisherman's Wharf where they want to put a hotel. So there is a possibility of history repeating itself, and I want to make sure that doesn't happen. I tie up, Becky's is on Hobson's Wharf. This is the wharf I work out of. And it is, like Charlie's, 100% commercial fishing. They have both uh, draggers, slime eelers, lobster boats, and they don't have a gill netter anymore, but it's 100% uh, commercial. And has been for its duration. As long as I've been here, and that was, I left Long Wharf in the uh, mid 80s. So what's a typical day like in terms of when you're fishing, your use of that work? I get here at four in the morning, I have a coffee, my boat fires up at five o'clock, I'm backing out of the slip at 5.30, we get bait, and I'm back here. Where do you get bait? I get it on Union Wharf. Okay, yeah. And, uh, I also sell my lobsters on Union Wharf, and we get back anywhere from 2.30 to 4 in the afternoon, and then I go home, yeah. and then the next day it starts all over again. Yeah. Um, until recently we were able to store traps here, but now uh, they've decided that we can't store anything on the dock, so we're working around that. Um, Willis Spear again, and I keep my boat at Customs House Wharf. Uh, the landlord's not a bad guy, fairly decent, and he gives us a lot of latitude to, you know, park our trucks or keep traps there for short periods of time, but in the summer, it gets very busy. There are two restaurants on the wharf, and uh, we lose our parking places, and uh, you have to come down in the middle of the night to move your traps, so that becomes quite difficult. But I'd like to talk... Do you have to come back in the middle of the night because during the day there's just no room on there's the no room. for you to work? No, no room. Oh, you're taking a big chance. You know, you may get lucky, but it's better just to come at night. But I remember as a kid, back in like 63 or 62, not 1862, 1962, I used to go with his brother from Woodland Beach in South Paul and we used to come over and there was what we call whiting shops on the end of three docks where there was a fisheries for whiting. There was roughly 75 small fishing vessels that were engaged in that fishery. We used to come over in the afternoon and buy our bait for, I think we paid about three bucks for a bushel of whiting or shad. I thought that was a big deal being a kid 12 years old back in 63. 66, I was lobstering out of a dory, but I started to work with other lobstermen, uh, basically from Long Island, Maine, that kept their boats here in Portland. And the first place that I worked out of was uh, Richardson Dana Lumberyard, which is long gone now. It's part of Einskip. But there were three lumberyards here right on the waterfront that were the vestiges of once a booming lumber trade along this side of the street. These wharfs were built for loading and unloading lumber, just putting lumber on ships to ship to places like Havana, Cuba, 
which to this day, a lot of the houses that are built in Havana have white pine boards from Maine that they love. But it was a big business, and uh, a lot of people got rich from uh, the lumber industry. And we used to have to go through the lumber yard to get down on the boat to go lobster. Later on, we moved over to Widgery Wharf around 69. And I remember driving down Commercial Street. There were three, two sets of railroad tracks after you got by High Street. And I remember one set of tracks had a spur that went off. One of the train, where trains would go off into the second building up here. We'd go right into the building, boxcars. That was the Porches Mitchell Warehouse, Porches Mitchell and Braun. Now it's uh, uh, apartments, but at one time the trains used to pull their cars in there. And a little bit further down, uh, the block of buildings that uh, run right from Union Wharf down as far as where DeMellis is, they had those buildings, uh, they were all merchants' buildings once for accounting and what have you. Uh, in the late 60s, they had them all full of caulk uh, for insulation, and they had turned them into uh, uh, like a refrigeration storage places. And Cudahy, Armour, and Swift all had meat packed in there. And mornings would come down, there'd be refrigerated boxcars along Commercial Street with wires coming out of them, going in through doors into those buildings. And all of a sudden, you'd see a side of beef come sliding out of the boxcar into the, into the building. And it was a different waterfront then, uh, uh, with the railroad tracks. You had to be careful with the trains. You'd see trains coming down the tracks. There was three restaurants I can remember, uh, Anchor Lunch. I think Larry Naples' bar room was where A.B. Chinchette's building was. Uh, that was a wooden building. The fishermen used to hang out in that. And then there was Central Lunch. Uh, the thing I remember most about Larry Naples, I knew a guy got thrown out of there one time for having too much to drink. Back then, you could park your boat at most any wharf you wanted. He was at Portland Pier, the end of Portland Pier, which is now condominiums. He threatened the, the owner of Larry Naples that because he got thrown out, he was going to have to Larry was going to have to pay the price. And what that fisherman did, he went down and he took the fishing wires off his net, and he dragged the wires I don't know, 500 feet up Portland Pier, which is a Herculean effort because those wires. 500 feet stretched out, weighed about almost a ton. And he dragged him across the street, and he wrapped him around that building. And he shackled those wires together, and he went back down to get aboard his boat and pulled the building off the foundation. He would have succeeded, but a train came by and cut the wires off. <laughs> so it was a pretty wild and tumble town. And uh, we've been gentrified over the years. Some of it's good, but also some of it makes it difficult for us to make a living. So that's it for my stories. <laughs> what about your wharf story? Well, Remind us your name? My name's Keith Lane. I fish off Custom House Wharf also. And this fella and I have known each other quite a while. We all started off a beach in South Portland. But from the very first year I was ever in a boat, we came to Portland, because Portland's the hub. You want to buy marine supplies, bait, gasoline, whatever. So I started kicking around these wharves in 1960. And I worked in one of those whitening shops he referred to in 1963, at the end of Custom House Wharf. Now, believe me, I have seen some changes on this waterfront. He described them. It was a 100% industrial area with a couple of exceptions. And now, I dare say it's less than 50% industrial area. 
That's the way it seems. Now, Custom House Walk has always been a busy place, right from the very first day I was ever down there. And it had mixed uses, one of the few, few walks that had mixed uses. But it was predominantly marine-related fisheries, uh, ship channeler, marine engine supply. Uh, the Casco Baylines was there when I was there. It's hard to believe now when you see how busy Casco Baylines is. The whole business was on about one-third of Custom House Wall. It's hard to believe because it's the, ch the city has changed very, very much. The economics uh, uh, went from being a uh, lower middle class, blue collar working city to an upper middle class city. And of course that accounts for a lot of the pressure undergoing on this waterfront, because the, the economics just changed. Big problem on Custom House Wharf is access. And in those six or eight months a year when it's busy down here, he referred to it as far as parking, but even so the boats can't come and go. Those wharves are crowded, Get a boat up to get the gear on or off is a difficult thing at any time because you have to work with the tide. In the summer, it's nearly impossible. And what wharf are you on? Widgery Wharf. Widgery Wharf. Tell us about your life on Widgery Wharf. Well, Widgery Wharf has been there since I can remember. It was there before I ever went to it. And it is 100% lobster boats, maybe one or two gill letters left now. And you said that you fish a variety of different things. I did. Or I have. Yes, I have. I mean, I started out lobster and I made it all the way to the Grand Banks and regulations drove me all the way back to lobsters again. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's how it works. And pretty soon they're going to drive us out of this as well. And widgery is still widgery. And that is the wharf where at the head of it they wanted to build the Bateman Hotel. And that's when it would all start to crumble down, I believe. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio, 89.9 FM in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Our show today is about Portland's working waterfront, past, present, and future. The conversation you're listening to was recorded in December at Becky's Diner on Portland's Commercial Street, and you're hearing the voices of fishermen Keith Lane, Willis Spear, John Bisnett, Jim Buxton, Bill Coppersmith, and Greg Turner, as well as Union Wharf owner Charlie Poole. Because this conversation was pre-recorded, we won't be taking any calls today. Back in December, the City of Portland enacted a six-month moratorium on any new development on Portland's working waterfront to give a specially appointed working group, including some of the speakers today, enough time to come up with solutions to the increasing pressures on the city's centuries-old working waterfront. It's not a new conversation, though, and as Charlie Poole, the owner of Union Wharf, explains, development pressures first came to a head in Portland in the 1980s. The, the ref, first referendum was passed <coughs> in 1987, had to be in place for five years, which in some ways was a good thing, because our zoning back then had no basis, and it caused the city to go to a newly formed waterfront group called the Waterfront Alliance and say, would you come up with a set of recommendations, not just for the central waterfront, of which all of us have been talking about, but also the east and the west. So there's three components to our waterfront. So the Waterfront Alliance took the task on and for five years worked on this meeting two to three times a month to hammer out what we considered recommendations that were 
it wasn't just business owners, lobstermen, it was a broad group of people that worked on this. These recommendations were sent to the city. The city then went through the whole planning board process, et cetera, et cetera, and came out with a new set of ordinances, which was a good thing because we did not have, as Bill said about Chandler's Wharf, it was Chandler's Wharf and then another condo development on the eastern waterfront that's what prompted the referendum to happen. So the referendum brought everything to a screeching halt, as it should have, to say, we need some proper land use policies. So those policies were adopted in January of 1993 after a lot of, of work and going through and so on. But, but it, was, it was that original pressure on condos that caused us to have um, a foundation of our current zoning. It has had three um, revisions over the years. Some of them are part of our discussion today, whether they need to be real bad, change, tweak, um, myself, Keith, Bill, are all on a committee of working waterfront group of which our, one of our tasks is to start looking into these. What is working, what's not working, finding balance and so on. But the zoning that was created in 1993 still has some foundation pieces which as a property owner I feel are vital to making sure that their industries and other working waterfront industries are protected, are, are given a fair, what I consider a fair rent to be paid um, everybody has to pay something. The city loves to tax all of our property. But the maintenance of taking care of these man-made structures is phenomenal. And when you're driving piling and hopefully someday dredging and replacing water lines and so on, it's very expensive. We, have, though, have sort of created a model where we can provide the berthing, the access, the parking, the working areas that they need without having our other tenants that are located upper floors and sort of tucked away so they can operate, come and go, and do their thing. And the current zoning allows for some of that. I'd be the first to say I think there are some areas that need some real hard looking at of which part of our job is to go and say, okay, that was 10 years ago that we last took a look at this. It's now been 10 years, and as I said to somebody at our alliance meeting this week, old clothing, when it doesn't work anymore, you throw it out. Zoning is the same way. As things wear out, don't work anymore, we now have to come back to the table and find what is the way to make sure, and Willie's probably says that in Bill as well as anybody, to make sure that not just our generation, but generations to go have a, a base of operation and a way to operate freely without anybody interfering, tying up my boat, getting my truck there, and so on. And that's, that's the challenge. I think we can do it. And I, I think we have a foundation. We have some great people that are at the table. So. Yeah, yeah. And anybody else can add to it. But that, I was a part of that original alliance group that helped write those recommendations. So I figured I'd throw my 10 cents. So what was it like in the 80s from a, from a fisherman's perspective? What were you seeing? Were the changes that sort of Yeah, go ahead. In the 80s, if you saw a stranger on Commercial Street, you were saying, who the hell is that? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you didn't people just didn't wander down here. Now it seems like they get off ninety five, the way the road goes, they have no choice but to end up here even if they don't want to and then they don't know how to get out. And to speak to Charlie's point of revisiting these every ten years, if you give somebody ten years, they're gonna figure out a way to get around the zoning. Greg's right. It was, it was a busy time in the 80s. There was, there was lobster boats, there was fishing boats, there was all kinds of stuff going on. 
Things started to wind down. Regulations come in the ground fishing industry. You know. Coming into the 90s, they talked about it. Then in the 90s, I can remember, they were, they were starting to ship boats out of here. Telling captains to go find something else to do. Ground fish. On the ground fish. Captains. Industry, yeah. Yeah. And uh, the economy wasn't very good. And wharf owners had to do something. They had to do this mixed use thing. Um, and they did. Get the mixed use thing in there. Time has gone by, the economy's getting better. Um, a lobster boat now built costs more than those great big drinkers did back then. Uh, lobster fishing has now become a year-round business for a lot of fishermen. Ground fish industry's gonna come back again too. Those regulations that were put into place, there's a tremendous amount of fish out there. It's just a question of when they release some of those regulations and the boats will come. Look for places to sell with them. Hoping we have the infrastructure left on the waterfront for them to sell to pick up their supplies. That's why we're sitting here. We're, we're, we're looking into a crystal ball. And we're looking to make sure we can continue to preserve and make sure there's something there for possibly the next boom in the <coughs> is the um, is the space that is currently accessible for commercial fisheries on the Portland waterfront is it maxed out in other words if if the ground fish were reopened as a fishery would, would ground fishermen have a place to come I don't believe so because of the size of the boats um, Charlie's Wharf would probably be one of the few that could handle your bigger boats, uh, they need room to maneuver and get in and out. Uh, you know, and that's going to be, you know, we need dredging and that's down the road. But um, they, I don't believe they'll be able to handle the size of boats that will be doing it because you're talking 65 to 90 foot boats. And uh, they take a lot of room. And your boats, your lobster boats? My are boat is 42. Other than the fish pier, probably not, but they used to tie up four and five deep at the fish pier, 90 foot boats. So when that's full, like John said, you're going to be done. What's kind of unique about Portland was uh, in the 80s, I was ground fishing with a small boat. I had a 46 foot boat and I fished the shore. And slow, <laughs> slowly, it was like the tide went out. It, the fish just went further and further away from the shore. So by like 88 or 89, I had to swallow my pride and go back lobstering. But lobstering was good to me and it was good to a lot of people from 89 and before right up till, right up till now. And lobstering's carried the way to keeping this infrastructure together. Boston's gone, Gloucester's gone. Some of the Portsmouth, New Hampshire's got one wharf. But we still have an infrastructure, and it's because of lobstering it's been good that it's there. It's not like it was when I was a kid, as I told you, in the 60s, but it was enough to keep a lot of wafts afloat. And uh, we're in a unique position, Portland is, with a fish pier, with a place to take fish out, and a lot of these wafts, there's, no, there's, there's building space available, that if the ground fish do come back and we are seeing strong signs. Once again, Portland will be a leader in, in the ground fisheries, which 
for the next generation, as Charlie and we've all spoken about, there's a future. And uh, that's pretty cool that Portland's still got it. You know, it's poised on the edge of the fishing ground. So that's a positive thing. I would make the point that if you compare any fishing marine-related activity versus some of the, you know, whether it's a lawyer's office, a coffee shop, a bar, there's very few activities on the ocean that have a rate of return that can compete with some of these newer business ventures and their desire to be at the interface between people in the water is going to outcompete us every time without some protection. Okay, there's there's a there's a point at which we have to have a much longer vision of the future. It may be ground fishing. You know what brought me to the Portland waterfront was urchins originally. I mean, five years before I came here, no one thought of you know an urchin was like a dandelion. It was like a trash. <laughs> You know, and no one could envision a point in which they were worth anything. And within five years, they were the second highest grossing fishery in Maine. Okay? Slime eels. I, I'm sure that every one of you as a ground fisherman would not believe in your no. wildest dream that they would be worth anything. And there is an export market. Okay? And those two fisheries are bringing money from overseas. That is exactly the kind of you know export revenue that the state of Maine and the United States should be pursuing. So, you know, we can't sit here today and say what is the next fishery? Maybe it's razor clams or maybe you know it's but it's sea cucumbers, but there's something there. There is many species that are underutilized out there. But without that interface where boats can come to a market and have safe berthing, we have no ability to capitalize on that when it comes forward. So, and leading into that, every time you take a parcel on the south side of Commerce Street, the waterfront side, and remove it from any potential marine use or commercial fisheries use, that's gone. And the new building may be there 100, 150 years, and uh, should this unknown fishery start up and need the facilities, I don't know where they go. And there was a, I could see where a problem was starting, and it was quite a bit before the 87 referendum. When the walk next to us, a marine salvage yard converted to a lawyer's office. And two years later, a harbor supply <coughs> company, that's a fuel supply company, an engine supply company, was torn down, and a three- and four-story condominium went up. This is 83 now. And by the time the referendum came along, half the place was gone already. 84 condominiums <coughs> over on former central law. It looked very, very much like we were gone. And this man beside me and myself and several others bought an open piece of land right here and constructed this walk right behind us, Hobson's Walk. We <coughs> truly felt that where we were in the waterfront was going to disappear and quick. Now, as it turned out, it stopped through the referendum. One of the comments I was going to make is there's a real challenge on our hands, and I, we have it at Union Wharf, it is how do we balance and make sure that the fisheries and other industries, we're not just fisheries, working waterfront is made up, as I said earlier, Portland Pilots is part of it, 
tugboats are part of it. Uh, oil spill cleanup is part of it. Uh, salvage is part of it. We have a dock construction company that's based on our pier. And there are others scattered throughout the waterfront. But the challenge is how do we ensure that we can provide grade A space? Bill is in, a, in an area that probably 15, 20 years ago we rebuilt entirely. Rebuilt the whole thing, new pilings, new everything. Um, John said earlier, dredging is a whole nother, we could have you back for another conversation about dredging. But finding that balance, finding how much is enough that's okay to generate revenue, because a lot of this is based on we need to generate revenue to make sure that they're paying what I consider, and I'll just raise my hand and say in our property, we've had one increase, which was $120 in the last 18 years. So a typical lobster boat pays 500 bucks to park a truck, tie a boat up, and at least have some area to unload gear and stuff like that. I have made it my mission to see that their industry not be pushed by increases in terms of maintenance and taxes and things like that. But how I can do it is the ordinances today allow us some uses of our upper floors and so on. And we do have tenants that are tucked away that I call marine compatible. They don't interfere. They come and go. They don't take parking or any space away. But they are the lifeblood from my eyes to making sure that that pier is kept in tip-top shape and that the fishermen that do operate off Union Wharf have a grade-A base of operation and they're not being challenged by me as the general manager to say, hey guys, Guess what? It's going to be another 500 bucks next year, another 500 bucks. And I've committed our company to say, we're going to make sure your industry is not being pushed by the need for more revenue. Many of these tenants like the idea that they are participating, actively participating in, in making the working waterfront remain, at least on our property, what it is today. And so your other tenants are, in effect, helping they are subsidize it. We are, you know, I use that as a loose term. But I'd much rather say to Bill, you know next year exactly what your costs are going to be to operate on our property. You know, no strings attached. But again, these, these properties suck up a lot of cash. And we just need to make sure as a working waterfront that we allow the revenues to be generated, but at the same time keeping our eye on the prize, which is what is the water-dependent use is need? Protecting that first and then say, how do we go from there to make sure that we are doing our job? So what is it that, so things have changed since the, since 93, I think you said the first one. So that was, was the beginning of the new referendum, of the new ordinance. Um, what, why is that ordinance not working anymore? It's not that it's not working. There are parts that need tweaking. Okay. These guys have worked hard to create the, the argument about this hotel maybe not happening. There was a loophole. It's a prohibited use, but there's a loophole to allow a contract zone to be written. That loophole needs to be shut, and that's part of our work right now. And, and there are some other areas that, that have, have in, in 2010, we had a 45-55% usage equation on a pier, 55% marine, 45% non-marine. There's, I think, some belief that's a little too loose. What is the right percentage? That's a conversation to be had. One of the key components of that was that if you were to put a non-marine, marine-compatible non-marine tenant on your pier, they can only go in with the permission of the city as a non-marine use. If they were to ever leave, that property reverts back to a marine. And I, as a property owner, have to go and re-advertise to the whole marine industry for 90 days anyway and offer it at what we consider competitive rates for that industry. 
If nobody takes up on it, I can then go back to the city and say, I have found somebody that will occupy this space. I reapply for a change of use. But it always reverts back to marine. And that came in in 2010, which I thought was a nice model because it allowed to say it is not gone forever. You're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and streaming online at weru.org. This is your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant. That last speaker was Charlie Poole, the owner of Union Wharf in Portland, and you've also been hearing from six Portland-based fishermen, Keith Lane, Willis Spear, John Bisnett, Jim Buxton, Bill Coppersmith, and Greg Turner. I met with these guys in December at Becky's Diner on Commercial Street in Portland, right in the heart of the city's working waterfront. Changes happening along Portland's working waterfront have been in the media a lot lately, and I wanted to hear directly from fishermen and wharf owners about their experiences on the ground. Specifically, Portland is in the middle of a six-month moratorium on any new waterfront development. During this six-month reprieve, many of the guests on today's show are involved in a multi-stakeholder working group that's charged by the city to explore options that better balance the needs of water-dependent industries, like the fishing industry, and new users of the waterfront that may not be dependent on water access, but certainly benefit from it, such as hotels, restaurants, and lawyers' offices. I learned that Portland's working waterfront is not just critical for local fishermen, but serves as a hub for the state's fishing industry as a whole. A quick note that since this show was pre-recorded last December, we're not taking any calls today. To what degree is Portland, are fishermen outside of Portland dependent on Portland to land their catch? Are there fishermen from other towns that come here? I live in Scarborough. Okay. And uh, I used to own an apartment building in Portland, but uh, as Charlie said, property values went up and it was time to leave, so I moved to Scarborough. Uh, But your boat is still here. My boat is still here. I fish out of Portland, but my home is in Scarborough. And most of the bait for the whole state comes through Portland. Very large percentage of it either comes in on M skip, it comes in on it comes in fresh caught, it's unloaded here, and it's just gone to ninety five to wherever it's gonna go. So fishermen down our way, down east, most of it comes probably are using bait that came through Portland. Absolutely. An interesting uh, observation was during these uh, uh, what they call stakeholders meetings uh, the city put on about the issue of uh, the wharfs and parking for the islanders and uh, traffic on Commercial Street. There was two. There was one held at Casco Bay Lines where they had round tables where people would sit down and talk about the issues that Charlie has mentioned, we've all mentioned. And, and the second one was at, uh, one was at Casco Bay Lines, the second one was at the Portland Public Library. The first one, I think there was 60 or 70, maybe not 60 people at these round tables. The second one, there was over a hundred about commercial street traffic. But they put their opinions of each table up on the wall to see how they felt. And I, and I felt, I honestly felt that what I observed was at both times, the overwhelming majority was that the people that live in the city of Poland want a working waterfront. 
that they like the character of the city. That's why I'm told that 55% of the population has just moved here in the last 20 years or out of status. 55%. They want to live here because of this character, because of Portland, what it is, because of people like Charlie. If the city of Portland ran the city of Portland the way Charlie runs its walk, we wouldn't be here, okay? So, I'm not blowing smoke. have enough money. Yeah, I'm not blowing smoke, Charlie. It's the truth. No. But, but they realize, and the people realize, the value of a working waterfront. You know, we talk about fish coming back. Well, it, that is a, uh, a vital nutrition of, of food, nutritional food, that a sedentary society, which I've mentioned before, that we live in now with computer screens, will keep us alive. And here we have it right at the doorstep. And, and, and to, to take, we feel to, to, to lose these wharf is a sacrilege. That to take a building down that, you know, housed a fish plant once and, and put something else that's non-marine that forces us to work twice as hard to get to our boats because you can't occupy two objects in the same space, and if competing, competing objects, that one wants to be there because they want the view, the other one wants to be there because he has to be there. And that's where we run into trouble. But the general populace, we feel, in Portland, they want the waterfront to continue. They want to come down, eat in a five-star restaurant, and then walk out and actually see people working on nets. You don't see that anywhere else in America. So yeah. we got a pretty cool place here. The story of Portland's working waterfront has made, certainly main headlines and some national headlines too. And you mentioned that the squeeze on the working waterfront is happening all up and down the coast, but that here is where the issue has really been pushed forward. What do you think, why have, has it been pushed forward here to the degree that it has? And what do you hope for the rest of the state? It's logistics. We realize if they keep going, we're not going to be here. So you either push now or you... Um, old, old fella told me, why don't you fight the battle while you got some money or you wait long enough, you don't have any money, you can't fight. Yeah. <laughs> and two years ago, I believe it was uh, in the fall, we were at a Waterfront Alliance meeting. And I think it was Musty Institute. And they came in and they said, how goes Portland? so goes the state. And uh, you sit back <coughs> and you kind of go, wow. Well, Commercial Street, it feeds onto 295. It feeds to the jet port. We've got rail connection. We're the hub. We're it. And so uh, they wanted to squeeze. Well, it has, and I call it the creep. The creep has started moving east. And you said it's even affected where you live. And you, you said the word logistics. Say more. Do you want to you know, touch on that? On anything, any, any shipping or receiving. You can either do it by rail, you can do it by ship, you can do it by truck, you can do it by air. Um, and it's centrally located. And you've got the roads you can pick up. I mean, it's just a fantastic location for a lot of things. But it's also a fantastic location for a person that wants to live in a million dollar condo and work in New York. They can, they can, they can buy one of those million dollar condos, jump in Uber, fly to the airport, Go work for three or four days, make that large amount of money, and come back here. Mm -hmm. What are your hopes for the Portland Working Waterfront? Becomes like Charlie's Wharf, all of them. Yeah. That in 50 years, it is still here. There are still young guys working. 
and uh, they're looking another 50 years. Yeah. We get right down to as simple as we don't want to lose our space. Commercial fishermen don't want to lose their space or the infrastructure that's related to our business. And we want it to carry on for generation to generation. I think also keeping our eye on the prize. The prize is how do we maintain and sustain a working waterfront. And as long as we, be it property owner, fishermen, or what have you, city of Portland is very much a player. As long as we all agree that we will collectively keep our eye and work together, I think we can accomplish generations down the road. But if you do take your eye off of it and just you know, sort of set it and forget it, that's when the problems arise. So I think if, if for nothing else, the exercise we're going through right now is a wonderful lesson to all of us that we all need to come to the table, as these guys have been great to do um, for, a, for a while. This didn't just start up recently. And, but if we can all agree, we will keep our eye watching this thing, and when the clothing gets old and tired and we need new, we get new, but, but it's, it's, it's never going to be, as they're saying, when Haddock comes back, wonderful news, but it's never going to stay the same. It might stay the same for a year or two, but it will never stay the same for five years, ten years, or what have you. It wasn't that many years ago you had a whole side full of dragons, right? Yeah. They respond to yep. So I know that some of you are involved in all kinds of discussions to move uh, solutions forward, um, and that's happening at the city level, right? You're, you're with the Portland Town Council and, and government and other agencies, other users of the waterfront. Um, so that's at the city level. Is there a message for our new governor? Is there something that Augusta needs to hear from you about related to the working waterfront? She came to one of our meetings and uh, on Tuesday, Wednesday night and uh, she said, well, I hear you, and, but uh, I believe we will have her support also in trying to resolve uh, the issues. Uh, that's my feeling right now. Uh, I'm involved with the Maine Lobster Union. I'm on their uh, legislative committee, so. At one of the meetings that, that John referred to, we actually had, at the time, both gubernatorial candidates now. And one thing that stuck in my mind when, when Janet Mills was sitting next to me was she didn't realize what kind of problems we were facing here on the Portland waterfront. She, she was totally taken back. But she got the message. And I guess the message that we can give her is, don't forget us. Yeah, don't forget us. I would just say what would be very helpful for, at the state level is a coordinated plan for the fisheries interface with land. So all the working waterfronts, whether it's Booth Bay, yep. you know, they have a, a, a but but you know, making sure that it's funded <coughs> on some level. I mean, it'll never adequately be funded, but that the state, like legislature and their legal structures. Of which she, you know, as a former attorney general, she's going to have a very good understanding. That working to ensure that easements and and um, you know comprehensive plans and zoning and all that things are organized in a way 
to ensure that this isn't just going to slip away because some speculator can can apply enough influence on a local government to get control. You know, they, when when somebody's able to apply a, a, a fair bit of money to achieve a, an end, you know, sometimes they can make that happen, and that's when we, you know, something just disappears and you think back and it's like, oh my God, how could we let that happen? So. A coordinated effort, you know, where the local towns who may not have the resources can go to the state and get help, and you know, and have a you know help with a plan, and a plan that applies to areas, not just towns. You know, if you think about it, the lobster is probably one of the most natural things you can eat on earth. I swear it could cure the common cold. Uh, we bait them, we catch them in a trap, and we, and we bring them in. You bring them home, you cook them. The only chemical hitting them is if you've got city water and it's got chlorine mixed with it. But other than that, yeah, I mean, you can't get an apple off a tree that hasn't been sprayed or insecticide put to it. But that lobster caught in that ocean hasn't been touched, hasn't been stepped on. And I'm talking about the live product now that you put in your own pot of water. And it's, it's, uh, it's a very, very, very healthy product. And I believe it's a much more healthier product than people realize right now. But I believe in the future they will start realizing that. It'll, it'll, it's, it's, it'll be right up there with organic foods and natural foods. And, but it's way better than that. Well, there's a trend we're seeing, you know, uh, uh, eat local. <coughs> and uh, you see it more and more in the farmer's markets, more and more people are out. And, and people realize that to eat local, uh, I don't think there's anything better. I mean, I've said this a number of times that uh, I just feel better after eating a tomato from Jody Jordan's farm out to Cape Elizabeth or picking, you know, eating blueberries from Washington County as opposed to getting an apple from, uh, I worked on a tug in New York in the wintertime. We had a, a bowl of apples from China. I got on the boat in, in November. When I got off in June, they were still sitting there. They were just, just still the same color. Yeah, they, they still the same. I'm, I'm, I don't know. I don't eat those. You know? <laughs> so it's important what we've got here, and we should let the rest of the people know that uh, I'm not going to get into the subject of uh, uh, fellows that I've known from Munjoy Hill in the 1920s that during the Depression, they had nothing else to eat but seafood. But in their 60s, they were still as healthy as hosses and working, outwork any teenager or a young man today. Yeah, I believe that. That last speaker was Willis Spear, a longtime fisherman who is actively working to protect Portland's working waterfront. You've been listening to Coastal Conversations here on WERU Community Radio, 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor and streaming online at weru.org. Our show today has been focused on Portland's working waterfront, a topic relevant to all of Maine's coastal communities, because Portland's working waterfront, as my guests explained, serves as a hub for the whole state's fishing industry. And Portland often sets the trend for how the rest of the coast may address fishing and waterfront issues. Working waterfronts, as listeners of this show know, define the soul and character of the Maine coast which is why we make a point of covering this topic regularly on Coastal Conversations. I'm grateful to the fishermen who took time off the water to talk with me last December. In addition to Willis Spear, our most recent speaker, you also heard from Keith Lane, John Bisnett, 
Jim Buxton, Bill Coppersmith, and Greg Turner. The fishermen were joined by Charlie Poole, the owner of Union Wharf, one of the wharves off of Commercial Street that has long prioritized fishermen's access. I also wanted to thank Monique Coombs of Maine Coast Fishermen's Association, who helped assemble our guests, and she's a great resource for information on working waterfront topics. Thanks also to Becky Rand of Becky's Diner on Portland's Commercial Street for letting us record the show in her restaurant's community room. Finally, thanks to Julia Cardoso, a graduate student at College of the Atlantic, for the technical support on this show. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning.